Dole Bludger, pensioner, Centrelink client. Language matters when we talk about income support in Australia, and many Australians benefit from various government payments over their lifetimes, though many also say there's judgment attached to some of them. Right now, we're seeing the Robo-Debt Royal Commission, a push to raise rates of income support, but also a very large government debt. What do you think? Does our welfare system need changing in some way? Dr. Eve Vincent is an anthropologist from Macquarie University, and in her book, Who Cares?, she asks us to think more deeply about our systems of care. Eve, welcome. Thanks, Hilary. Now, you interviewed people about their experiences on the cashless debit card and the Parents Next program. We'll dig into both those soon. But I want to get a a better idea first of Australia's welfare system more broadly. You argue first that we should use other terms than welfare recipient. Why is that? Isn't that a a kind of useful value-neutral term? Well, what I really argue is that it's useful to kind of think more deeply about, you know, the the language and the categories that we have to work with. So in the book, I kind of talk about denaturalising the category of welfare recipient, thinking, you know, what does that mean? Thinking about the idea of the unemployed, which really emphasises the one thing that someone is not doing right now, which is wage work. So I wanted to uh, get beyond the idea of uh, defining people uh, through these these terms and to really, when I interviewed people about being on welfare, their experience of the contemporary welfare system, it was a very fluid and open conversation where I talked to people about their whole lives so I could build up a, a picture of who they were. I talked to a lot of people about their working lives, very rich and long working lives, You know, their dreams, their fears, their passions, their kids a lot, their caring responsibilities a lot. That's that's partly where the theme of care in the title emerges. You know, many of my interviewees were busy. I came to see that they were working, doing a kind of ongoing necessary work that that we're not very good at recognising as work. Um, So looking after babies, looking after kids, looking after sick relatives, maintaining households, you know, on really straightened incomes. Uh, you, you know, yeah. you mentioned, yeah, so you, you mentioned the term dole bludger in, in your opening. I mean, that was really interesting to me. Uh, the history, as you say, the history is important to me. Uh, I wanted to kind of understand where we'd arrived at, and that meant going back to the past. Uh, so I read some interesting stuff about that term of, of dole bludger that you mentioned. This was a slur that, that really emerge and gain currency in the 1970s, uh, a time of rising unemployment and also rising inflation. We've, we've seen some commentary kind of harking back to that time lately. But it uh, came from much earlier, didn't it, that term? That's right. And, and I read some work by the historian Verity Archer, who traces the history of that term. It, it's a much earlier term, originally a 19th century word um, for a sex worker's pimp who carried a bludgeon. And so the pimp or the bludger lived comfortably off the sex worker's labour. And in the 1970s, you get this idea, and I think this idea is still with us, that a dole bludger lives off the hard work of the taxpayer. Well, and that idea of the taxpayer came in for some scrutiny in your book too, didn't it? Because some of the participants you spoke to had an interesting take on that. Yeah, I mean, people were really savvy about the fact that they pay taxes. Uh, I think that in our debate about the welfare system, we, we often get this idea that there's a welfare recipient and a taxpayer. These are two mutually exclusive categories. But this is very misleading. As, as you were saying, 
a lot of us receive state subsidies that we might think of as forms of welfare. Um, This is really a moral distinction and it's not a very good empirical one. On the other hand, uh, people on welfare also pay consumption taxes, uh, things like the GST, you know, and then there are other kind of ways of raising revenue that are uh, sort of akin to flat taxes, road tolls, fines, and, and these all affect poorer people actually more significantly than, than people with higher incomes. Well, and on that issue of differential effects, you, you write very uh, powerfully, Eve, about how the definition of you know, quite narrow definition of paid work that underlies our welfare system erases a lot of traditionally female work, but also more of uh, the kind of collective modes of support and care that often happen in Aboriginal communities. Let's have a look, though, at some of the work you did on the the history of our system. I mean, some people argue that the government spends too much on welfare and that people receiving payments do need to be monitored. When did this attitude start to gain more traction within the welfare system? Uh, Yeah, I mean, this is really a global story. Uh, Australia is sort of in sync with a lot of transformations to comparative welfare states. Uh, I guess there are ideas uh, circulating in the US particularly, which gained ground in the 1980s. Uh, The idea that poverty is is not so much a social problem, uh, but an individual problem, uh, that it's to do with individual behaviour and that, that a social security system should should strive to change individuals' behaviour. This is all really uh, central to the work of Lawrence Mead, uh, a, an American political theorist. Uh, he argued for neo-paternalism, and more supervision of the lives of the poor to combat our welfare dependency. Uh, so really propagated this idea that welfare dependency is the root problem And this certainly gets taken up in Australia in different ways. Um, You know, I I argue in the book that we are actually all, in fact, uh, interdependent uh, and we sort of have a a cultural problem uh, facing our dependencies, which I think laid the ground for this um, very kind of pejorative, negative image of dependency. Though some people might argue we also have a debt problem and, and that, that welfare is part of that. Is it not a worthy ideal to say, look, we want to reduce people's dependency on this welfare system and aim to get them onto more stable, long, longer term incomes? Sure. And I think it's, to, you know, I think it's really important to kind of work with people to figure out what they aspire to and also to think about if this is the goal to move people from dependence on these these really miserably low payment rates and into the workforce, which is definitely the aspiration of so many people that I talk to. What is effective in doing that? How do you support people to do that? So a lot of these ideas about individual behaviour change their sort of concrete manifestation in Australia has been, uh, it, you know, programs such as, or the principle really of mutual obligation, uh, the idea that uh, people have to give something in return for receiving social security. Of course, that makes so much intuitive sense. Um, you know, it's reciprocity, exchange, these core human principles. But in reality, mutual obligation can be really coercive and really involve very close supervision, surveillance, monitoring of people and, and, and a system of, of kind of punishing people where they 
fail or are seen to fail to fulfil their obligations rather than that kind of uh, support, um, uh, you know, working with people, collaborating with people to help them realise their goals. Lots of different texts coming in on this as we're speaking with anthropologist Eve Vincent. She's written a book called Who Cares, which looks in detail at our ideas about care and support and how that translates to real people's lives, but also how they are used in the welfare system that we uh, have in Australia today. One says, yes, welfare needs to change. I'm on the dole. I went to bed last night thinking about being dead and I woke up thinking about being dead. I'm not suicidal, but sometimes all the doll BS makes being alive under these conditions means being alive under these conditions isn't good sometimes. And if this conversation at any point brings up uh, things that are making life hard for you, I'll give the lifeline number, which is a good place to start. They can often refer you to more targeted support that might help you in that moment of, uh, of real difficulty. 13 11 14 is that number. 13 11 14. Another says, we're Centrelink customers, not clients. If we were clients, they've had, had they'd have a professional responsibility to dole bludgers and customer means we have a choice. And yet another says welfare payments should be reduced and welfare recipients should be monitored. So there is a diversity of opinion within the Australian community at the moment. Uh, As well as Eve Vincent today, we have with us Rick Morton. He is a senior reporter for the Saturday paper. He's reported extensively on robo-debt. The Royal Commission's having hearings now, uh, again underway this week. That program affected 400 thousand people. Rick, welcome back to Life Matters. Where does robo-debt fit into the changes to the way welfare payments are managed these days in Australia? Uh, If anything, it's the logical conclusion of what Dr Vincent has been describing over many decades, which is the increase in surveillance, the increasing attitude, not just in the political class, but among everyday Australians, that people on welfare should be monitored and punished um, for not doing their job, which is working for a wage. Um, And the way that it all came to a head was using algorithms, 21st century technology, um, and a complete callousness and disregard, I wouldn't say, for the well-being of people um, or even their their basic life circumstances. I mean, we we had um, the former Human Services Minister, Alan Tudge, essentially saying that people on welfare all earned even income and um, they could just go back to their employers to check for records that were required by this Centrelink system. And, of course, people with very little money um, have very few resources to go back and, and look for employers um, who may not even be in business anymore. So all of these kind of assumptions about you know, the choices and challenges that people who are receiving welfare have um, that we just don't really kind of take into account anymore. And RoboDebt was the the zenith of that, I think. So what are you learning from, from the hearings in this commission, Rick Morton, uh, from the witnesses who are giving evidence this week, particularly about their experiences being told that they owe large amounts of money? It's, it's a shattering experience, um, particularly when you're told by a government. I mean, Australians like to think we don't trust our governments, and we don't. There's a lot of diminishing trust. But we do have a basic faith that they are being upfront when they say that there's information owed. And that's what we saw with Robert. That a lot of people didn't even think to fight the debt because Centrelink told them they had debt and therefore they, they entered repayment arrangements because to do otherwise would have literally killed them. Um, they would have you know, had mounting um, obligations that they just couldn't cover. So they, they acquiesced, they said yes, and they entered repayments. And where they chose to fight, uh, the government itself literally lied to them and, and said, 
even if you manage to get your employer payslips to verify your own income to to say you know this is how much I earned and therefore I did earn those welfare payments even if you had all that stuff the government could still come back and say well actually we've got this averaged uh, tax office data and we think you're wrong so it it really it hurt people um, and you know I've been on the uh, I've seen my mum you know I grew up in a single parent household and I've seen my mum deal with Centrelink debt when Centrelink made an administrative error um, and mum did nothing wrong, but the, the money was still overpaid and she still had to pay it back. And just the mere fact of that conversation is enough to completely derail not just your day, but your week and your month. Um, when you're already living on the edge. Yes, as, as you wrote in your books on money and 100 years of dirt, the margins are very slim, so the stakes are very high if, if something changes. But Rick, I mean, what's your sense of the attitudes towards people on income support that exist within government departments? I mean, can we say that there's a lack of empathy per se, or is it more a belief that the system itself will ultimately help people despite some individual suffering on the way? I think I think I think the real problem goes to experience. I mean, even the most well-meaning people in the world, you know, socially progressive, you know, small L liberal people who come from middle-class backgrounds cannot hope to fully understand what it's like to live on the on the margins of society if you're, you know, you're straight, you're white, you're middle class, all of these things. And that's sort of just the way the world is but at the same time you do have to try and there wasn't even there was a severe and i would say dangerous lack of curiosity um, particularly in the department of human services where this scheme was cooked up now every single i'm talking robot every single centrelink compliance officer knew in fact they were warned by the department of human services at the time in induction manuals and and um, employee manuals that if you've got a person on welfare who earns uneven income or has more than one job there might be casual, gig economy these days, you know, those kinds of workers, which is almost everyone on welfare, I might add. Uh, if you've got one of those people using income averaging, which you could only do as a last resort anyway, apparently, uh, would give you an inaccurate assessment of a person's income earned in each fortnight. Every single frontline employer knew that. And yet the further up the hierarchy you go in this department, the less that seems to be understood, whether deliberately or otherwise, until eventually you get to a point where people are designing systems as if they don't involve people at all. But what they saw was a mountain of debt that they could claw back um, and a way to do that very efficiently. So, Rick, do you think just finally much will change out of this Royal Commission? Uh, I, I, I think it has to, and I think at the very least, I mean, I think ministers do bear ultimate responsibility, but the public service does not get a free pass. And I think, well, I know uh, many of the most senior public servants in the country are watching this with great interest. And I think there has to be a lot more value placed on them doing the right thing in their own jobs, regardless of what their ministerial overseers might demand of them. Very much appreciate you taking the time to join us today, Rick Morton. Thank you. Thanks, Hilary. Rick Morton is a senior reporter for The Saturday Paper who's reported extensively on robo-debt and you'll see his uh, words in print in coming weeks about that, no doubt. We're speaking today too with Dr Eve Vincent who's an anthropologist from Macquarie University about her book Who Cares and her research into certain aspects of our welfare system, uh, the assumptions underlying them and the impacts they have on people. Uh, Eve, let's talk about some of those particular aspects that you studied, the 
cashless debit card, uh, you looked in particular at some of the people who were uh, participants in that in Seduna in South Australia. Uh, what impacts was it having on people's lives, that, that system where uh, an amount of their uh, income support was quarantined away from alcohol and gambling? Yeah, that's right, Hillary. 80% of uh, their social security payments were quarantined onto a card. Lots of the people I talked to, yeah, I was working in the first trial site for the cashless debit card in South Australia. A lot of people talked about being very bewildered when they first heard about the card. They read about it in the local paper. They received a card in the mail. Uh, so this idea of extensive community involvement, even co-design, this was uh, kind of baffling to them. They certainly felt that, you know, one research participant said that they never listened to the little people. Uh, so a feeling that something had been imposed upon them uh, then I guess some of the themes in terms of what was life like on the card, I guess shame was a, a major part of my research in the end. I mean, shame is hard to study. It's very hard to survey, which, uh, you know, the government commissioned evaluations did survey for it. But shame is so embodied. It so kind of happens in the moment, that shriveling inside. And, and you know, I did field work. I was on the ground and I talked to people who really, you know, powerfully evoked for me that sort of awful moment of handing over the card in the bakery, in the supermarket and, and feeling like others' eyes were on them, making assumptions about them and their life. Uh, other themes, I guess, getting used to the card, that, that became a, a really big theme. People got used to the card, but that raised the question for me, okay, so have people adapted to the, to the card or have they adapted the card to their lives? And, and certainly I collected a lot of stories about the latter, people sharing cards, people pooling resources, the 20% of cash that they did have was shared, uh, people finding inventive ways to get around the card. Um, yeah. The, the yeah. I mean, as you say, there's a, a lot of stories that aggregate around these things uh, mm. and, and you get different perspectives. Um, I did read that a crisis meeting was held in Seduna in January where some members of the community were really worried that cancelling the card had caused a spike in alcohol abuse and other social harms. What's your response to that? Mm, yeah, I, I mean, my books come out at a time when the debate has really sparked up again, and particularly in WA. Uh, it is in the news. Communities are grappling with this transition from the card that was in place in some areas for six years uh, to the voluntary income management, the new smart card. Look, it's really hard for me to answer that question. Uh, I'm very clear in the book that I am an outsider who was, you know, really uh, honoured to be invited into some people's lives People were incredibly generous in sharing their stories with me, but I can really only speak to what I documented on the ground through my extensive interviewing over the life of the cards, sort of from 2017 to, to 2019. Of course, I'm watching this all very closely. It's very distressing always to hear reports about any alcohol fueled social harm. And I'm, I'm in touch with people in Sejuna uh, you know, who have various things to say about what's happening it is complex, of course. I, I really hope that 
a really big range of voices can get out to the media and share their perspective on what's happening and why? Well, yeah, and I mean, a version of it is still operating in Cape York and in the Northern Territory, the basics, basics card. But also the Albanese government is rolling out a voluntary card scheme, the smart card soon, and they say that's going to offer support services as well to help people kind of transition away from that dependency model uh, as well as income management. Is that a better approach in your view? Would it help change the, the shame aspect at least? Yeah, so the smart card is basically the morphing of the cashless debit card into a voluntary scheme. Uh, the other sort of significant thing about the smart card is that, uh, th- that you know, there's a lot of private privatisation throughout the whole of the welfare system. And the cashless debit card was an example of that. A a financial product company called Inju uh, was contracted to issue and administer the card. And, uh, you know, a total of 170 million flowed to Inju over the life of the card. These are, you know, this is this is money paid to a company to to kind of um, monitor the, you know, and be involved in the lives of people on, on really minuscule incomes. And a lot of my research participants were very scathing about that. They had a very keen understanding of that. Uh, you know, one person said to me, they've taken all the poor people and sold them to a private company. So the smart card is not privatised. It, it sort of brings back that form of income management sort of into the state. The basics card is different again. Um, it, it predated the cashless debit card and as it turns out, it has outlived it. Uh, that's a, That was an intervention measure first introduced in 2007. Yes. It's still in operation in the Territory and, and in Cape York, as you say, but uh, I think Amanda Rishworth is will embark on sort of consultation around the basics card future. Now, Vincent, I know that your line is only with us for another minute or so, and I do want to quickly ask you about Parents Next, which is a program that increased or expanded the mutual obligation model to parents of quite young children, uh, some single, some coupled, and the bulk of them women. You, you talk to a lot of people, you got a lot of different stories, there were common threads around, you know, difficulties navigating the system and, you know, how awful it was to get suspended, how difficult it was sometimes to get back on. But you did write that some people found that program beneficial in some circumstances. Overall, did it help make parents work ready? Most people I talk to, uh, you know, objected to this program. It's, it's, it really, as you say, it extends mutual obligation to people on parenting payment, uh, compulsory in many cases from when their babies are nine months old. And uh, mostly single mums uh, sign a participation plan, you know, agreeing to do certain activities. I mean, right from the outset, it implies that parenting is inactivity, that they're not participating, not contributing to society, by raising their children. Many people agreed to do things they were already doing. Uh, People agreed in some cases to do fairly kind of absurd commitments that satisfied their case manager and that that really didn't um, benefit them. But yeah, that's right. I, I had a really amazing interview with someone who had just a very collaborative, respectful relationship with their case manager and actually a bit of a more more continuity uh, with their case manager. So a really consistent theme of many of my other interviews was really high turnover in the employment services space, uh, you know, <laughs> incompetence actually in this space as well as 
contempt of the kind that that um, Rick Morton was sort of referring to, being patronised. Uh, but but I certainly had a few participants who had you know, happily had a very different experience to that. And I guess that experience gives us some insight into how things could be better. Dr. Eve Vincent, it's been fascinating hearing the results of your research. Thank you so much for your time on Life Matters. Thanks, Hilary. Dr. Eve Vincent is an anthropologist from Macquarie University. Her book is called Who Cares? And we heard earlier too from Rick Morton, senior reporter for the Saturday paper, uh, his uh, understandings of the RoboDate Royal Commission that's on at the moment. I think our text line has collapsed under the weight of response to this story. Here's just a smattering of them. One says, I got pinged by robo-debt. I was a contract teacher and so I didn't get paid over Christmas, even though I had worked the full year. Centrelink claimed I owed over $2,000 and the onus was on me to prove I didn't owe it. I got the debt cleared, but it took hours of trawling through pay slips. Another says, bring on the universal wage. Carers, mothers, doctors and the unemployed all get the same. Hallelujah. And Margaret says, Prime Minister Sanna Marin from Finland, is it? Often and proudly called her country a welfare society. One text here on our understanding of the welfare system. I think we misunderstand it, they say. The vast bulk of the money goes to the aged, not so-called dole bludgers. In addition, those receiving franking credits and capital gains tax concessions are, in effect, pensioners. And just finally, I've always believed in voluntary work and helping others, but giving back is a weird idea when you're being coerced and treated like an incompetent, dishonest imbecile and much of society thinks you're a scumbag. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.